could open up your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 11. Thank you, Gary, for encouraging us and for leading us yesterday. This morning, I want to direct our attention back to the section of Scripture we considered last Sunday. We're going to consider the second part of it, which has direct application to where, what we do next. What we do next. Luke chapter 11. We'll read the first 13 verses together. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend? I'm sorry, which of you who has a friend who will will go out to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those Who ask him? The passage begins with a story, a story of friends. An old friend has been serving the Lord in a distant land and he returns home. He arrives around midnight because he's been traveling in night to avoid the heat of the day. Without phone or even mail service, he was unable to communicate to, to let you know he was coming. You had no way to anticipate his arrival. A dear friend returns home. You're delighted to see him. But then you get a sick feeling in your stomach. You ate the last loaf of bread for dinner. You have no meat. You have nothing 
to offer your hungry friend. In this culture, the sense of responsibility for a guest was legendary. Hospitality always included food. It was expected. It was unthinkable to ask a guest to go to bed hungry. And in the absence of 24-hour grocery stores, the only hope for food was to check out the neighbors. Then you remember that your next-door neighbor baked many, many loaves of bread. They brought one over. You had it for dinner. It was wonderful. But it's midnight. So you reluctantly go over and knock on the door. What do you want? Who is it? It's Charlie next door. I need some bread. It's midnight. I'm asleep. All the kids are asleep on the floor. I I would wake them all up if I came to give you the bread. I'm sorry. Come back in the morning. I can't do that. Please come and give me the bread. I need bread for my guest. No, my kids are asleep. I need the bread. I'm not leaving until I get the bread. Suddenly the next door neighbors begin to rustle. Their lights are coming on. The neighborhood's waking up. friend gets out of bed with a little bit of a grouchy attitude and gets three loaves and opens the door and hands you the bread that you need. That's the picture we have here. It's a picture that is meant to reveal something of the heart of God to us. See, we've we've been reading in the first four verses, how, what we are to pray for. Jesus says, when you pray, pray for God's name to be holy. Pray for God's rule to be manifest. Pray for God's provision. Pray for God's forgiveness. Pray for God's deliverance. That's what we pray for. And that's critical. We must pray for the right things. We must pray according to God's priorities. But it's not enough to pray for the right things. We must pray in the right way. It's as important to pray in the right way as it is to pray for the right things. So before anything else, Jesus immediately transitions from what to pray for to how to pray. And the focus is really found in verse 8. Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, because of his impudence he will rise and give him what he wants. Jesus is deliberately encouraging impudence. The best translation for that, because it's only found here in the New Testament, the best translation of that word is shameless persistence. Because of his shameless persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, 77% of Americans believe there is a personal God who answers prayer. 
But most don't feel that they're getting their prayers answered. And if we dig down to the frustration and questions that people have about prayer, I think this word impudence gets to the heart of why our prayers so often are ineffective. Perhaps as you consider the past year, you realize that there are prayers that went unanswered. And the question that we have to ask is, why is that? What I'm glad for is that Jesus doesn't leave that vague. He doesn't say, well, you know, some prayers get answers and some don't. That's the way it goes. He says, listen, there's a quality that fruitful prayers have to have. And that is a shameless persistence. A shameless persistence. Now what I want us to consider this morning is, as we pray, are we praying, are you praying to God with shameless persistence? And that's what this passage directs our attention to. Because God delights to answer, to reward persistent prayer. Do you believe that? God delights to reward persistent prayer. And we know that because right after this account, in verse 9, he gives us the principle of shameless persistence. Look in verse 9. He says, I tell you. And whenever Jesus says those words, you know, He's about to say something very important. So that's his way of saying, pay attention, listen up. What I'm going to say to you right now will change your life. Listen up. I tell you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, it's important we understand with the transition from the parable to this principle that, that God is not the grouchy neighbor. God's not picturing himself as one who has to be badgered in order to get your prayers answered. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. God the Father is not grouchy, he never sleeps. He never gets impatient. He's never irritable. God is always generous, delighting to meet the needs of his children. This is the moral of the parable. The friend had to keep knocking to get what he needed, but God is quick to respond to his children's cries. So if the tired and selfish neighbor finally meets the needs of his bothersome friend, how much more will a loving heavenly father meet the needs of his own dear children? God delights to reward persistent prayer. But don't miss the word persistence. Jesus is saying there's a quality of prayer that gets answered. There's a quality of prayer that God delights in. And if you parents know how important this quality is, your children might ask you for a hundred things a day. Dad, I want this. Mom, I want this. It's the whole catalog. I want it all. 
But there are only a few things, a few things that they'll ask for again and again and again. The wise parent is listening and realizes, oh, that's something that really means something to my son or daughter. Guess how God listens to our prayers? He wants to know how much we really value what we're asking for, what we care about, we pray about. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of God's predisposition to give to his people, said it this way. God says, I will give them much that they need without their seeking for it. Is that true? But in order that they may not wholly forget me, there are some mercies that I will not put at their doors, but I will make them come to my house after them. I love that. There are some mercies God's not going to deliver to your door. He's going to wait for you to come. And reflecting on the parable, had the neighbor given up and said, okay, well, if you won't open the door, then I guess I'll go back and tell my guest he's going to have to wait. Because he didn't do that, because he kept knocking, he went home with bread. How often are Christians, you and I, how often do we go home with empty hands because we don't persist? Because we just pray a quick prayer and we don't go to God's house after them. There's a delight here in God's heart. A, a delight to be generous. And a desire to interact with his children. And to hear our hearts by virtue of our persistence in coming to him. And so to underscore this, he gives us here three present imperatives, three urgent commands. And our, in our English versions, we can actually miss the point. Each one of these is, is an ongoing verb. So he's saying, for instance, not simply ask and it will be given, but ask and keep on asking. Ask and keep on asking and it will be given to you. That indicates a process, a relationship, a coming to God again and again, realizing our lack and implying a humble heart, realizing that I need something only God can provide. I'm conscious of my need and I humbly ask my Father to make that provision. It implies a faith in God who can and does and will answer. And so it speaks of a warm and personal relationship. It also speaks of a process. God, during this time of asking and keep on asking, God clarifies our motives and our prayer focus. So, so many of the things that, that we ask once for or twice for, as we continue to ask, we recognize you know, that's really not the thing I should be praying for. There's something else that God wants to do in this. Or there's something that's required of me to do in this. And so in this process of coming to our dad 
in dependence. We ask, and it's, it's a spiritual dance, if you will. We are, we are encountering God, and he's, by the way, leading. So in this dance, we're encountering God, and he is leading us, and our prayers begin to change to fit his. Our heart submits to him. But he doesn't end with asking. He says, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. And you'll find now, seeking includes asking, but it adds action. It's an earnest petitioning with effort. So it's a prayer. God, would you please provide finances for me? I I need money. I need to pay my bills. And as we're doing this dance together, as as I'm encountering God in prayer, over time, he begins to impress on my heart where I can look for work because he honors diligent work. He begins to speak to me about where I can save money to minimize expenses. He begins to speak to me about resources that he has available for me. And so we're walking through this time as I'm praying for my wife to be healed. He impresses on me to to fast and pray. And so fasting becomes part of the process of asking or perhaps to see a particular physician or use a particular medication. And the Lord in this process changes me, enlarges my heart, engages me in the process. Or for my daughter who needs to be pregnant, my daughter who's been seeking to have a child, and I'm praying for her, and God says, here's, here's something that she can do. And so seeking adds action. But we don't stop with seeking either. We ask and keep on asking. We seek and keep on seeking. We knock and keep on knocking and it will be opened. Again, the, the parable. The man knocked on his neighbor's door and he kept on knocking. If he hadn't, the door wouldn't have been opened. So there is a personal responsibility that comes to us as part of prayer. Prayer isn't just saying, God, do this for me. But part of the spiritual dance is that God leads me to do things for myself, to do things in his name. And so we pray, we knock and keep on knocking. There is a persistence that is added to seeking. So my asking adds action, and adds persisting. It it means that I don't give up. It means that when I'm praying for my neighbor's salvation, that I don't give up. That I recognize that part of what's going on isn't just God working in my neighbor, but God working in me. Teaching me to trust. Teaching me to persist. You know what? As Americans, by and large, we are not good at persisting, are we? I'm certainly not. I'm very impatient. I hate lines. I hate traffic. I just, I, just want, I just want things now. I don't even like waiting for the microwave. It's pitiful. And so when I pray, I'm not naturally a persister. I want to pray and I want to get an answer. 
But what we see here is not a God who's a vending machine. A God who says, as soon as you pray, I'm going to come running. But a God who says, prayer is, is, is relationship. And as you're praying, I'm going to work in your heart as you're asking me to work in others. In praying, I'm going to change you and conform you. And oftentimes you're going to end up praying for something different before we're done because you're going to understand my wisdom or you're going to understand my heart or you're going to understand my ways. See, prayer is birthed in relationship. It's, it's, and it's not simply petition, but it's a strenuous petition. Prayer is not easy work. It's hard work. Paul asked the Roman Christians to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Jesus in the garden was in agony. He was literally sweating drops of blood. There's a work to prayer. And the truth of the matter is for for most of us, we're, we're really not looking for more work. But there is, a, there is an effort that is required in effective prayer. It's not simply reflecting on God's promises, but taking hold of God's promises. It's an active pleading with God. And so this process of prayer comes with a wonderful promise. The principle is in verse 9. The reward is in verse 10. He says, everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. There is a stacking of commands here that come in ascending intensity. It's, It's a powerful promise that if you will persist... If you'll not only ask, but keep on asking, and seek, and keep on seeking, and knock, and keep on knocking. If you're willing to engage me, and pray, and allow me to transform your hearts as we proceed. If you're willing to let me convict you of, of sinful motives, of selfishness, so that your prayers become glorifying to God. Your prayers will be fruitful. Because I delight to reward persistent prayer. Do you believe that? God delights to reward consistent prayer. Persistent expresses our soul's confidence. It's a way of saying, not, Lord, I'm going to keep doing this until I manipulate you into doing what I ask. No, rather, it's a way of Expressing confidence in God that he delights to answer. God delights to reward persistent prayer. Think of Jacob wrestling with the angel and saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he got blessed. Or Hannah weeping and praying, pleading with God in the temple regarding her bitterness, her, I'm sorry, her barrenness. And God responded to Hannah's passionate prayer by giving her a godly son. Or Ezra and Nehemiah praying and weeping over Jerusalem's fallen walls. Andrew Murray says it like this. 
Persistence begins with the refusal to at once accept a denial. It grows to the determination to persevere, to spare no time or trouble till an answer comes. It rises to the intensity in which the whole being is given to God in supplication. And the boldness comes to lay hold of God's strength. It's not attempting to change God's mind, but putting ourselves into a place where we can, He can trust us with the answer. See, prayer is never meant that God should stop being God. Let's be honest, we don't have the wisdom or the grace to run the universe. God is God, and when God doesn't immediately answer, He has reasons for waiting. More is happening in waiting than we would ever imagine. He waits because persisting is good for us. We learn to trust God and not our own strength or gifts or resources. We learn to pray and not lose heart. We learn to wait. We grow in humility, acknowledging that He is God and I am not. He prepares us to receive the answer we've sought. He reveals to us a greater purpose for our prayers. See, Jesus already told us in the disciples' prayer why we should bring petitions to God. He says, he says, first of all, to make things right in the world, your kingdom come. And then to align our hearts with God, your will be done. And then he demonstrates that. He demonstrates that in Gethsemane. When he was, was, was crying out to his father, in Gethsemane, when he cried out, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. It reveals God's predisposition to reward persistent prayer. God is a wonderfully generous God. But he calls us to pray his prayers. And in this dance, He transforms our hearts so that our prayers become His. John Calvin says it this way, When we pray, God grants our prayer, even if He does not always respond to the exact form of our request. Even when He does not comply with our wishes, He is still attentive and kindly to our prayers. So that hope, relying upon his word, will never disappoint us. Brothers and sisters, if you pray, if you ask and keep on asking, if you seek and keep on seeking, if you knock and keep on knocking, you're going to encounter God in a wonderful process in which you will never be disappointed. He works in our hearts to encourage persistent prayer, to teach us what we should pray for and how we should pray. So Martin Luther says, God is not, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. Did you hear that? Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. He's not the grouchy neighbor, but laying hold of God's willingness. 
He's a father. And that's what the last part of this passage highlights. We should have great confidence as we pray. Great confidence. And here's why. And it ties us right back to the beginning of the disciples' prayer. Our Father. Why should we be confident? Because we're coming to one who is first and foremost our Father. And so Jesus illustrates what that means. In verse 11, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? He's saying, what, what do you think the motive is of a father? What father would there be that if his son came and asked for a fish, he'd say, sure, here it is. And he'd, instead of handing him a fish, hand him a live snake. What kind of a father would do that? Or what kind of a father, if his son said, Daddy, I'm hungry, can I have an egg to eat? Would instead hand him a scorpion that looks like an egg but uncoils and causes him harm? What kind of a father would do that? And then he says in verse 13, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more? How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Once again, Jesus is giving us an example from lesser to the greater. If an earthly father would give good gifts, how much more would your Heavenly Father? If an earthly father responds to a request, how much more your Heavenly Father? The only human being in history who deserved to have his prayers answered was Jesus. Because only Jesus lived a perfect life. And in the garden, when Jesus prayed for the cup to be passed from him, the Father did not answer his prayer. God treated Jesus as we deserve. So that when we repent and believe, God can treat us as Jesus deserved. Jesus' prayer in the garden was rejected so that our prayers can be heard. That's why when we pray, we have confidence to be heard by God because Jesus Christ died for us. Think about this, church. When we repent and believe, God treats us as Jesus deserved. Jesus is saying something wonderful and powerful. If sinful earthly fathers want to make their children happy, how much more does your heavenly father want your happiness? Consider this. There has never been a parent who wants joy for his children as much as your Father in Heaven wants joy for you. Do you believe that? There has never been a parent who wants joy for his children as much as your Heavenly Father wants joy for you. And if you're a parent, you know that's a big statement. How about this? There has never been a father 
who wanted to answer his child's requests as much as God wants to honor answer yours. There's never been a father who wanted to answer his children's requests as much as God wants to answer yours. That's true. But since God is not only loving but holy and just, the question we have to ask is, how can he shower blessings on sinful people who deserve the opposite? And the answer is that Jesus got the scorpion and the snake. He took the scorpion and the snake so that we could have food at the Father's table. He received the sting and the venom of death in our place. We know that God will answer us when we call my God because God did not answer his son when he made the same petition on the cross. We come with boldness because of Christ's sacrifice. And that's why this this last verse, this last half of the last verse is so significant. He says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? See, at first, I don't know how that hits you, but I can think this is kind of bait and switch. I mean, I'm, pray, I'm praying for finances to pay my bills, and he's telling me he'll give me the Holy Spirit. What, what gives? I, I, thanks for the Holy Spirit, but I need the money. Or I'm praying for healing for my wife, and he says... I'm going to give you the Spirit. What gives? Well, Jesus is very intentionally pointing us to the greatest of all gifts. He's saying, I will give you, my Father will give you, not only what you're asking for, but just to highlight his generosity and his attitude of heart, just to highlight that God delights to reward persistent prayer, I want you to know he'll give the Holy Spirit. When he gives the Holy Spirit, he's giving himself. He's giving himself to us. And when he gives himself to us, then we have all that we need for life and godliness. See, he hasn't undone the prayer from the disciples' prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. He's glad to do that. He's just saying that's a small thing. That's a small thing. What he's really going to give us is the Holy Spirit himself, which means he's going to give us all things. That's the whole point in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, do not worry saying, what should we eat, or what should we drink, or what should we wear? For the pagans run after these things. That's the way the world lives. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, which is what happens when we dance. We learn to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then he says, all these things, they'll be given to you as well. The, the money, the healing, the provision, 
the husband, the child, the place to live, all of that comes. But the greatest, the greatest gift of all is that God says, I'm going to give you myself. And when I give you myself, I'm going to give you everything else as well. In his new book on prayer, Tim Keller illustrates that this way. He says, we know as we pray for good things that we already have the ultimate good thing. In God himself, we have the headwaters and the source of all we desire. Even if one of the tributaries of our joy, something in this world that we love, goes dry. For through all things, so for though all things fail us, yet God will never forsake us. He cannot disappoint, since all good things are contained in Him. Brothers and sisters, life will disappoint. People will let you down. The stuff of life will not deliver as promised. There will be hurts and sadness and disappointments for each of us. But when he says, though all things fail us, yet God will never forsake us. He cannot disappoint. For all good things are contained in him. When he gives us himself, when he says the Father will give the Spirit to those who love him. It's the greatest gift of all. And it's not just for now, but it's for eternity. And so ultimately, the answer to every prayer that we pray, the answer to every desire and every need we bring, is God himself. Only God himself is eternal. Every relationship, every thing that this world has will one day go away. And we'll just see him face to face. And when we see him face to face, we'll realize that we spent a lot of our life trying to get stuff that doesn't matter. There's only one thing that does. That's the Lord himself. So what do we get in this dance when we ask and keep on asking and seek and keep on seeking and knock and keep on knocking? We get our hearts purified. We repent of selfishness in our requests. We, we, we learn that we should act so that we can, can see the requests we have desired met. And we learn to persist. We learn to be patient. We learn to love and value God more than we love and value what we're praying for. And that's the victory. That's why God calls us to pray. And so here's the key. We, we've wonderfully begun this year in prayer together. But I think anybody who prayed yesterday would emerge saying, that was wonderful, but we've only just begun. As good as that was, we just hardly scratched the surface, right? And so what, what 
God's open to us as we begin this new year is this, this invitation to come in relationship to him and to bring our request and to not be afraid to ask God for something because maybe my motive's wrong. Well, God will show you. Do not be afraid of asking because I don't know quite what to ask God to do. Well, that's okay because he's, he's omniscient. He, he knows what to do. To come, to bring our requests, to say, God, I want to ask you and keep on asking. I want to seek you and keep on seeking. I'm going to knock and keep on knocking. And as we walk through this process, you're going to help me to understand what's important. You're going to change my heart and my desires. And in the end, in the end you're going to answer my prayer. Because my prayer will be yours. And you're going to use me to see your kingdom extended. To see my heart made right and the hearts of others reconciled. You're going to do that because you're my father. And because you delight as my father to answer persistent prayer. So here's my challenge to us. That we've begun well, but... It's not beginning well that ends, that, that's the key, it's finishing. We're in a race together. And, and those who are going to run the race have to do that without distraction, with one goal, to, to finish this race together. So brothers and sisters, let us do that together this year. Let us persist in our prayers, individually as we're seeking the Lord, corporately as we're praying together as families as community groups as fellowship groups we're having a hospitality we just say let's just take time before dinner to just to pray together let's believe that god's going to do amazing things not because we're such skilled prayer warriors no because we're dancing with the king we're praying to the omniscient one the one who's all-powerful who's excited to reward persistent prayer. He's a generous king. And we want to come with a sincere heart, a humble spirit, and great confidence. And I want us to be able to take some time to just pray together and ask God to do that. So we're going to project three prayer requests for you. And... I want us just to break down groups of three or four. Now, let me just say this. If you're not comfortable praying out loud, it's okay. This is one of those places that you can begin to be more comfortable. You're among friends. And and remember that prayer is relationship. It's not saying the right words. It's sharing our hearts with our Father. So we're going to just take a few minutes to pray through these three prayer requests that God would help us, that God would help us in this next year. And, and so if you would go ahead, oh, they're, they're projected. So let's break down in groups of three or four and just take, just take three or four minutes to pray for these and then we will continue to worship together.